we're going to look at quickly today, and I say that facetiously, one verse. And that would be verse 29. So I want you to keep your finger there. 29, we'll get to it in just a moment. In 1982, there was to be an alignment of the planets, an event that occurs every 179 years called the Jupiter Effect. According to astrophysicist John Gribben, the co-author of the Jupiter Effect, this phenomenon will exert an uncommon gravitational pull on the planets. Because of that, because of the publication of the book, Hal Lindsey, the author of Late Great Planet Earth and also the 1980s Countdown to Armageddon, said this, This alignment will cause great storms on the sun's surface, which in turn will affect every planet. And according to Lindsay, he says the earth will slow down slightly on its axis. And because it will slow down on its axis, this will put tremendous strain on the earth's faults, touching off earthquakes. This, of course, would bring about great floods because dams in the United States have been built on fault lines. Then nuclear power plants would experience meltdowns at facilities near fault lines as well. What happened? Nothing. In 1999, Ribbon later wrote, there is no Jupiter effect, and I'm sorry that I ever had anything to do with it. In other words, reading those signs became another attempt to attach prophetic significance to the happenings in the heavens. So I want you to look and I want you to see some of the other or one of the other things that is supposed to appear as a sign from heaven. Y'all see that? It's a UFO. That's one of the signs in the heavens, basically, according to Hal Lindsey. He said that the rising interest in UFOs fulfilled Jesus' predictions. Did y'all know that? That fulfilled Jesus' predictions that there would be terrors and great signs from heaven just before his return, as stated in Luke chapter 21, verse 11. Listen to what he says. Let's read it. It says, It's my opinion that UFOs are real and that they will, there will be a proven close encounter of the third kind soon. And I believe that the source of this phenomenon is some type of alien being of great intelligence and power. And according to the Bible, a demon is a spiritual personality in the state of war with God. The prophecy tells us that demons will be allowed to use their powers of deception in a grand way during the last days of history. I believe these demons will stage a spacecraft landing on earth. They will claim to be from an advanced culture in another galaxy. So therefore, I started searching, and I think I found it. <laughs> I think I found it. Okay. Now, we are in a, a section called the Olivet Discourse, basically, that speaks of these astronomical occurrences. 
Jesus tells us then in verse 29, this is what we see there as we look at it. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. Okay? So now what we have to ask, we have some questions that we need to ask in this situation. This is it. Should we expect the sun literally to be darkened? We talked about this last week. If we had things that were absolutely darkened, that the sun did not give off its heat, we would all die. The next question we need to ask is, will the moon literally cease reflecting light from the sun? And will literal, literal stars fall out of heaven? Now, according to the book of Revelation, stars fall to the earth in chapter 6 and chapter 12. We'll see that just in a, just a moment. It says this, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it is shaken by a gale. Then again in Revelation 12, it says this, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So we hear this and we say, okay, what does that mean? If those stars literally fell on earth, would there be any earth left? Now, according to a leading dispensationalist, John Walford, he says, well, what the stars really mean is depicted are really these. These are meteorites. That's how he describes them, as well as Charles Ryrie. They all describe them as meteorites. So if that is the case, then in the book of Revelation, they're stars, then they must be meteorites in Matthew chapter 24. Correct? If we're going to say that. Now, understand this. If a third of meteorites fell to the earth, our planet would be devastated. In fact, even if one large one like this were to come and to hit our earth, half of the world would be absolutely destroyed. In fact, according to scientists, it was one meteorite that hit the earth, sending debris across the globe that destroyed the dinosaurs. And even Disney follow that. You, you remember this picture? Did you ever see it? It came out in 2000. It's called Dinosaur. And in that, that that motion picture, you see the little streaks in the sky? They started showing meteorites hitting the earth and wiping out the dinosaurs. Disney depicted what scientists believed. But I did find theologian Gary Lawson, artist and cartoonist of the far side, the real reason that dinosaurs became extinct. They're smoking. <laughs> okay, you can't see that. That's the real reason they became extinct. 
thing. So now, according to the futurist interpretation, these meteors fall to the earth during the seven-year period following the rapture. Then Jesus comes and rules and reigns over this. Now you think about the destruction of meteors coming to earth and hitting on the earth, destroying places. Then you need to ask yourself the question, what will Jesus rule over for a thousand years? What will he rule over? Devastation. That's going to be his kingdom? Wouldn't make much sense, does it? I, I don't think so. So, as we look into this particular verse, we must understand the Bible study principle. This is it. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's what we need to do. So, we're going to unpack this little verse right now. The first thing we look at is it says immediately. Notice what it says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. That word immediately is used 13 times in Matthew. Always signifying, always signifying something occurring soon after a preceding event. For example, Simon and Andrew immediately left their nets and followed him. This was a call that what didn't happen years later. In other words, when Jesus was walking down and he sees them and says, Come and follow me, he did not mean in a few years. So they immediately went. But yet we have people interpreting this immediately after the tribulation of those days. They will say that's 2,000 years from the time that Jesus spoke. I just don't think that is true. Because in the context, it says immediately after the tribulation of those days. What tribulation? What he was referring to back in the verses before. It says, that for then there will be a great tribulation, verse 21, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. That's what he's referring to. The tribulation after those things happen, this is what's going to happen. Now I want you to think with me. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. What he's speaking of as we're talking is that he has an Old Testament uh, imagery that he's looking at. This is what he is trying to get us to understand. This means, basically, the Romans came in, they laid siege to Jerusalem, and we have to look and see what is the language that Jesus was using. And if we look at it, we're going to understand that he is using language from the Old Testament that the Jews would understand, his disciples would understand, because there was no New Testament when Jesus was speaking. We get that confused. Oftentimes we think, well, Jesus had this New Testament and he's quoting from the New Testament. No, Jews had the Scriptures. You remember as the two men were walking along the road of Emmaus and Jesus appeared to them and was walking beside them and they were talking about what was going on and what had happened in Jerusalem. And they said, where have you been? And Jesus hears them and then he says, guys, let me tell you what's happening. It says, in beginning with Moses, prophets, he explained to them everything concerning himself. And so what did they have? They had the Old Testament. They had the, those scriptures. And so Jesus is using Old Testament imagery. 
And so this Old Testament imagery, when we look at it and go back to Scripture, allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture, we're going to see that it refers to when he's using these kind of this kind of languages, the sun being dark and the moon not giving forth its light, stars falling from heaven. We're going to see that this language talks about people and it talks about nations. The nation Israel was referred to as stars. It says, the Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. And you go through the Old Testament, you will see that they are referred, the nation Israel referred to as stars. Other nations referred to as stars. And in fact, a person himself, Jesus himself, referred to himself as a star. We sing a song about it. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Right? We sing a song. He's the lily of the valley, the what? The bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. All that little phrase is from the scripture. It's from the scripture. Depicting Jesus Christ, a person. Folks, we use the same kind of thing today, right? We have the battle of the stars. We have the dancing with the, what? Stars. We have Hollywood, what? Stars. We have somebody like Seth seen for so beautifully, and we say, boy, he is a rising star. I call him an angel. He's always up in there harping about something. But anyway, But we do that as far as nations are concerned. What do we have on our flag? Stars. What does it represent? States. So we do that. Now, if you go through all the countries of the world, you'll begin to start seeing all these different stars. And these things depict their country. Japan has a sun. We have all those kind of things that happen. The great state of Texas is the lone star state. And I think it needs to be the lone star country, but that's another thing, so we'll, we'll get on to that later on. But we need to look at this and understand that these images depict people and nations, but they also are represented as symbols of kings and of kingdoms. Genesis 37 9 says this. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers. And behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. This is Joseph when he was 17 years old having a dream. And this is how he depicts these people coming to bow to him. The sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now, who was the sun? Who was the moon? Who was the eleven stars? In the very next verse, it tells us about this. It says that the stars are this. It says, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I, the sun, right, and your mother, the moon, and your brothers, the stars, indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you. 
So what we're seeing is symbolic language, celestial imagery, basically, describing people, nations, and kings. So how did Jacob and Joseph understand, I mean, how did his brothers understand uh, Joseph? Did they really actually literally mean that the sun, moon, and stars actually bowed to him? Hmm. They understood the imagery of the dream. And so therefore, when we're in inter Scripture interpreting Scripture, when Jesus speaks about these suns and the moons and the stars, we need to, is he, to, to understand he's using language that these people would be familiar with and the imagery that he uh, would speak of would denote the same kind of thing. In Judges, the book of Judges, we see the same thing. Listen to what it says. The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils for silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Cicero. Was that literally in heaven were stars fighting? They were depicting the kings. They just said the kings came from heaven the stars fought. In other words... Stars represented kings and kingdoms. This was imagery that they were using in this kind of language. But we also see this, folks. Celestial imagery depicts a historical act of judgment. Isaiah 13, 9 and 10. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars in the heavens and their constellations will not give light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. In other words, Isaiah is saying, look, the day of the Lord is coming. When that term usually, almost 90%, 99% of the time, in fact, is used the day of the Lord, is talking about coming, a judgment that is going to come. So we have to ask the question then as we're looking, to whom was God speaking? In the very first verse, it says an oracle concerning Babylon. He's speaking about Babylon. And who did God raise up to inflict judgment on Babylon? We have to go down and keep everything in context. Verse 17. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. So when Jesus, I mean, when, when Isaiah says the stars of heaven and constellations are not going to give their light, the sun will be dark after it's rising, the moon will not shed its light. In other words, what's going to happen to Babylon is that Babylon is going to become desolate. Babylon is going to not see the light. They are going to be darkened by these armies. And then we see God. Sending out some wrath, or as I say, turning out the lights on another country. That's what he says in Ezekiel. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you, and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. So we ask the same thing. To whom was God speaking? Here it says in verse 1, in the 12th year, Twelfth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him. God was saying this. Egypt, lights out, bud. 
lights out. I'm going to bring judgment against you. And who did he bring forth to then to inflict the judgment? Verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you. So we see that Babylon was used to destroy the Egyptians. And when that happened, it was depicted as if they went into darkness. And then again, we got another country that comes under wrath. In Amos, it says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, the gloom and no brightness in it? Who in the world is God speaking to at this time? Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Now you remember what it said. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord because it's darkness. Woe to you who desire judgment because it is darkness and not light. And who did God raise up to inflict judgment? So we look through history. We see there was the Assyrians in 722. They came in and wiped them out. So now I want you to look and I want you to see a comparison, please. And here's a comparison. Isaiah, let's look at it again. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Now listen to what Jesus said. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. When we look at this and we look at other passages in the Old Testament, we are seeing that Jesus is using the very words of the prophets beforehand that were calling judgment upon nations. Jesus was using that same kind of language to let them understand judgment was coming to you and did come to you, to them, in A.D. 70 with the fall of Jerusalem. We need to look at that and understand it. Jesus was basically saying this. He was prophesying judgment against Israel. He was overturning their religious and political system by describing this event in terms his hearers would understand. He was using celestial imagery. We need to grasp that, folks, because if you're going to take these things literal, that these things were going to happen, you would not have hardly any world left for Jesus to rule and reign over. So we need to look at it as they looked at it, and that Scripture interprets Scripture, and this is exactly what Jesus was doing, was speaking something that they fully understood from the prophets. Now as we continue on, and it says... And the powers of heaven, of the heavens, will be shaken. Now, this is what this means. This is highly symbolic language to describe the shakeup of the Jewish religious system at the judgment of Christ in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The name of F.W. Farrar, a long, long time ago, wrote a commentary on Matthew. This is what he said. The powers of heaven were being shaken sun and moon and stars from Roman emperors down to Jewish priests 
were one after another waxing dim and shooting from their spheres. Clearly the day must be at hand of which the Lord had said that it would come ere that generation passed away and that all things of which he had spoken would be fulfilled. And how do we know that happened to that generation? The key verse, as we've said before, verse 34, Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 24, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That time indicator reminds us that these things that Jesus is speaking of were going to happen in that generation. If that is true, and it literally means that the sun is dark and the moon doesn't give its light and the stars fall from heaven, we would not be existing right now. In other words, if it was literally that they're going to fall because that generation would not pass away until those things happen, they were literally going to fall, there wouldn't be anything left to this earth. What he was saying was highly symbolic language to say judgment is coming. And your whole religious system, your whole high priest and all the priestly class and all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those rules, everything is going to be turned over. It's going to become dark. It's not happening. It's, something else is going to take its place. And we see in the book of Hebrews, the writer gives us a clue to what this means, what it says. Okay? Listen to what it says. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I want you to look at that verse really well. Yet once more indicates the removable removal of things that are shaken. What was shaken up? What was overturned? The things that were overturned was a sacrificial system that, that uh, the Jews had set up in obedience, to, in obedience to God, but then they had taken it to such a far extreme that it wasn't even like it was supposed to be when Jesus arrived on the scene. And Jesus cleanses the temple. Jesus turns over everything and says, look, what is going to happen here is that this, all these things are going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped out and I am going to give you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Nothing else will be, uh, be acceptable. This is what's going to be acceptable. It's going to be my sacrifice. And so what we see is the removal of things shaken. That was the sacrificial system of the Jews. It was replaced with the perfect sacrificial lamb and with the kingdom of God. And in fact, Jesus said this. You remember, we talked about this in Matthew 21. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and to the high priests. 
And he says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And in the verses that follow, it says, Pharisees realized he was talking about them. Not someone 2,000 years from now. He was talking about them. So what's left now? Here's the point, folks. I want you to understand and walk away with this today. You have been given the kingdom. That's what Hebrews says. You have received it. Let's look at it again. It says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you became a kingdom citizen. Peter tells us in his writings and in his epistles, he says, you now are a holy nation chosen by God. And therefore, since you are a kingdom, you now have that in you, the Holy Spirit of God in you, producing fruits to enlarge the kingdom. What you have, now think about this with me, what you have cannot be shaken. No matter what you do, no matter how far you fall, if you are truly a child of God, you will come back to Him because He will produce a work in you and a conviction of the Holy Spirit in you to bring you back to Him and you will continue on to bear fruit. You will not be shaken. In other words, your salvation cannot be shaken from you. You are saved to the uttermost because of Jesus Christ. You have a kingdom within you. Now what do we do? We go and bear fruit. That's why Jesus called His disciples. That's why He called you. It says, I am calling you. You did not choose me, but I chose you that you go and bear fruit. And thereby glorify your Father. That is what we are to do. We're not to sit around waiting and saying, Oh, when are these stars going to fall? When is the moon not going to give light? When is the sun not going to be dark? And when are we going to wait for the rapture of the church? No, we already have a kingdom, dear folks, that has been given to us and it's not going to be shaken. Therefore, we are to go out and we are to bear fruit doing what God told us to do and that is making Christians, making disciples of all nations. Folks, think about that. If you've come to Jesus Christ because He's drawn you to Himself, you're not going to be shaken. It's not going to be taken away from you. You have it, and you are to bear fruit with it. The question always comes to us, and should come to us, is this. Are we producing fruit? Are we producing fruit? I believe that we are. We are. You're here. Is that fruitful? Yes. You are here. Some of you are here bringing your children. Is that fruitful? Yes, your children are seeing you take them and bring them to church. That is fruitfulness. Are you passing along the Christian faith to your children? If you are, that is bearing fruit. You don't have to be some high and mighty missionary in another world, in another country, to be able to bear fruit. 
You're bearing fruit right now just by being here and offering up the sacrifice of praise unto God. So that's why we desire for everyone that can, anytime they can, come to church and worship God, offering that sacrifice, that acceptable worship of God with reverence and awe. For our God, it says, is a consuming fire. We don't ever want to come under that judgment. We don't want anybody to come under that judgment. What we want is that people come to know Christ and that you come and you are part of worshiping God, thus bearing fruit. But as you go, are you to continue to bear fruit? Yes. You continue to bear fruit by doing what the Scripture tells you to do. It tells us to what? Walk in the Spirit. And not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It tells us to be obedient to God. It tells us to be kind and gentle and patient. It tells us not to repay evil with evil, but evil with good. These are some of the things that we need to understand as we go. Since that kingdom is dwelling with us and us, we're not waiting for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already here. It's in us. We have received a kingdom. Therefore, we are kingdom citizens. We should act like we should move forward, bearing fruit. Folks, I just want to tell you, I just want to tell you that I know some of you may not want to believe like I believe concerning this. You have been taught like I was taught concerning this with all the charts and all the, all the books and all the things that related to the different ages and different times and different things and different here and there. I've got them in my library. I can introduce you to them if you ever want to see them. I can bring them to you. I've got the, the complete works of, 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 you know, of, of the Bible written by Schofield. I've got maps and I've got charts and I've got all that stuff. That I, thought, but I began to start saying I was looking more for a rapture and complaining about all the things that were going on in the world and going, oh my goodness, Lord, come quickly, come quickly, please, please come quickly, rapture, out, rapture me out here and standing still instead of fulfilling what needed to be done. And then think that it kind of makes sense to me like that verse that we just said. Would the sun really be darkened? We'd be in a deep freeze. Would the moon quit giving its light? Will stars fall from the heaven? And I began to scratch my head and I said, is there something something else that we need to look at. And I begin to explore it. And I begin to read about it. And I begin to study it. And I realize that perhaps I was pinning my hope on something that had already happened. Which I believe it did. That was fulfilled in that time when Jerusalem fell. What I'm asking you is to give that consideration. You may not come to that conclusion that I've come to, but give it consideration that we don't just sit around waiting for the rapture. That we actually go out and produce and change and influence the world in which we live, starting with the people around us and whom God has brought into our sphere of influence. So I pray that you would take up the mantle and say, How can I spread this kingdom? What can I do to influence, you know, influence the world for Christ? That's our calling. And it could be in your workplace. It could be moving outside of what you're thinking and getting into to areas that you need to influence, such as politics 
or maybe even into a job that allows you to be able and gives you the freedom to influence people around you for good, whatever it may be, realize don't place your hope in a rapture and not fulfill the kingdom. Not fulfill the kingdom. The kingdom is Jesus Christ. Let's move forward and do that. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you again that we have your word and we have your scripture to look through, to study, and to understand. And I pray that we would look and continue to be like the Bereans, study and see if these things are so. So, Father, I pray that you would teach us continually about these things so that we may know, that we may know, not only our hope and our calling, but, Lord, that we may know that you're good on your promise, that we believe, oh, Lord, that you are coming again. Lord, we do believe, Lord, that you've given us a kingdom now. So help us, Lord, to expand it. Help us to be influencers, oh, Lord. Give us your divine initiative. Burn it within us once again that we share the gospel and that we would let our light shine so that men may see our good works and thereby glorify you. Pray, Lord, these things for this church, for myself. In Jesus' name.